This is the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Today, we welcome Dr. Kate Shanahan to the podcast. Dr. Kate's work changed my life. Menopause hit me several years ago, and almost overnight, it felt like I had gained 50 pounds and mostly around my belly. In addition to all the other symptoms of sleepless nights and brain fog, I started really hating myself, and I just didn't understand why. That's when Dr. Kate's book, Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food, came into my life. By making a few simple tweaks, I started to feel better. Dr. Kate's newest book is called The Fat Burn Fix, and it shows us how to get back to burning fat for fuel. I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Kate Shanahan to you today. I've been thinking about having her on the podcast for over a year. Dr. Shanahan is a globally recognized nutrition and metabolism thought leader. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's a speaker, NBA, collegiate team, and professional athlete nutritional consultant. She works with athletes and other humans to optimize their metabolic health. This is necessary because the current status quo is in nutrition science is not evidence-based and the for-profit healthcare system lacks the checks and balances that ensure ethical patient care. Further, athletes are bombarded by nutrition advice that is based on poor quality evidence that dramatically impairs their ability to use body fat for fuel also known as metabolic flexibility. She was a nutritional consultant for the Los Angeles Lakers from 2011 to 2016 and has appeared in Good Morning America, Scientific American, Sports Illustrated, CNN, Men's Journal, US News and World Report, Prevention Magazine, Vogue, National Geographic, GQ, The New York Post, Women's World, and People Magazine, just to name a few. Her newest book, The Fat Burn Fix, is a New York Times bestseller and is a guide to show you your body how to start burning fat as fuel. Dr. Shanahan is trained in family medicine and has a background in biochemistry and genetics. She studied at Cornell. During the podcast, we talk about Dr. Shanahan's story of nutritional experience, why we gain weight in the first place, the lack of nutritional training in medical school, what is inflammation and what is inflammatory? Why are seed oils so bad and their history? The role the American Heart Association plays in nutritional guidelines and how they were first funded and it's not what you think it might shock you. Seed oils and cravings, insulin resistance, the role nutrition plays in migraines, and stay to the end to discover the four pillars of the human diet and the number one thing Dr. Kate recommends in addition to cutting seed oils from your diet. At the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcast, where you can find the show notes plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. If you enjoy the episode, be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. And thank you for all of the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast because this helps more women to find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause because no one should have to go it alone. And if you want to talk to me about anything here on this podcast or any other podcast, just open a conversation with me at Gordon on Instagram. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. Now let's get to Dr. Kate Shanahan. So Dr. Kate, thank you for coming on to the Menopause Movement podcast today. And one thing I wanted to ask you just so your work has changed my life. 
I mean, through following the principles in deep nutrition, I was able to cut out the things that are really bad. And, and I've, I'm an advocate. I, I'm always saying vegetable oil is the worst. And I talk about it in my paid stuff. I talk about it in my free stuff. Like if you're going to do anything in your life, it's get off vegetable oil, get off sugar, and you're going to feel amazing, right? But the thing that I'm really interested in hearing about today, I want to get to like the, the story of deep nutrition and how you how you got into like understanding food science. But then the other thing I want to talk about is is the fat burn fix because the I've surveyed tens of thousands of women in menopause and the biggest thing that they want is to lose weight. They want to understand how to lose weight. And so I think your your book lays out a really doable plan for anyone who wants to actually make those changes. The problem that I think happens when it comes to weight loss is you have to become a different person to look at yourself differently. In a lot of ways, right? So there's a lot of different reasons that people have gained weight and there's a lot of different personality parts that lead to weight gain for different reasons. So I'd say a small portion of the population, like 10 to 20%, this portion of the population that are kind of those annoying people that I, I never was this like willpower driven person. I, I didn't really have willpower. I still don't, but you know, you just tell them what to do and they're going to go ahead and do it. My brother was like that. Like my, my brother was like, well, you know, before I learned anything about nutrition, he was like, is this like ramen noodle stuff really good for us? Should we be eating it? And I was like, who cares? It's it tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, and so he, there's people 10 to 20% of the population, you just tell them what to do, they'll lose weight. So those, those people are, you know, easy, <laughs> kind of uh, low hanging fruit, really, you just tell them to get off seed oils and boom, it's like their world. It's so easy for them to do it. And they don't have any other hindrances, like, uh, like even a sweet tooth, right? Like I, that was my big thing. So anyway, I don't want to derail it down into my story. Let's start out where you want to start out. Well, Sorry. it's so, I mean, no, it's okay. Uh, I could go forever. No, no. And that's, then that's, that's the point. And, and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to have you come back because this, <laughs> this is such a big, big topic. And I've had weight loss experts on the podcast before, and I've had an obesity doctor on, uh, just to, and, not weight loss, we're talking about medical, medical weight loss and talking about like the medical options and things like that. But I always go back to Hippocrates, let food be thy medicine, right? Mm. And the thing is, is that we live in a society, especially here in America, where everything is kind of run by corporations. And so we saw the big change in our eating when in the 80s, we lost the farms the family farms, right? We stopped regional eating. And there is no, there's no nutritional training in medical school. I went to osteopathic medical school. You went to allopathic medical school. And I, I think we can agree. I, I got no nutritional training. Well, there is no nutritional training. I mean, you know, this is my big thing, which, which is why I say that, you know, it's really the American Heart Association that is the thorn in the side of nutrition science, because mm -hmm. they make sure that what we do learn about nutrition is wrong, right? They starting with the idea that saturated fat is what clogs your arteries. That is the most unhealthy idea ever created. And it led to the flooding literally of our food supply with these polyunsaturated fatty acids that are actually toxic, that actually cause the diseases that supposedly saturated fat causes. And so like, it's no accident. I think that, um, nutrition science is the doctor, you know, we, we do go around saying that doctors don't learn nutrition science. I like to modify that a little bit. We don't okay. learn correct nutrition scientists, but neither do dietitians, neither right. do nutritionists, uh, neither do 
like anybody that's educated within the standard medical stream, by which I also, I, I include, you know, even like chiropractors and functional medicine doctors. Naturopaths. Because, yeah, yeah. Because there's still in this idea that saturated fat is bad. And then there's all these other like ideas that have spawned from that or that are related to that, which drive people in the wrong direction by, by which I mean, you know, animal fat or animal protein is unhealthy and, you know, dairy is pro-inflammatory, inherently pro-inflammatory. And uh, another fall guy of the whole dietary thing is gluten and now lately lectins, right? So we've got all these other things that are in the common parlance now that, oh, well, this is inflammatory. That is inflammatory. None of these things are inherently inflammatory. Your immune system has to be messed up and then you may have a reaction to them, but not everyone has a reaction to them and they didn't cause the problem. Our sensitivities to these things is a result of the seed oils. Okay. So, so we're going to go back to seed oils and we're going to talk about, so that you've got the, the, the top five are canola. You can probably, you can probably tell them a lot faster than I can. Uh, there's three C's and okay. three S's. If you really want to, um, you know, get the A plus in this. So three C's are corn, canola, cotton seed, soy, sunflower, safflower. And these are the things that the industry calls vegetable oil. And technically olive oil is a vegetable oil, avocado oil is a vegetable, but those are never going to be when you look at the ingredients list and they say vegetable oil may contain one or more of the following, Mm -hmm. you're not going to see olive oil or avocado in there because they're much more expensive and they're more expensive for a reason. There's limited supply of them, but they are also better for us. And the, you know, the reason that we're eating all these unhealthy seed oils is because there's almost an unlimited supply of them. That has to do with the agriculture. I mean, they're annual plants. You can grow them in uh, many, many, many climates. Uh, so they're just producing, you know, a hundred times more of this stuff than we could ever produce of olive oil or avocado oil. Right. It's a byproduct of these factory farms and cotton seeds. I think they saw that they were rancid and like, oh, what can we do with these? You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. the whole industry started a hundred years ago when somebody looked at the piles of cotton seed that were just sort of rotting, literally fermenting on a, on a far, a cotton plantation and started trying to like, what can we do with these? So they started trying to feed it to cows. Cows died because, you know, it's to- nothing like their normal diet, but it's also super high in unstable fatty acids and the stuff's really toxic. So it took a while before the scientists could find a use for it. The original use was candles. They, they hydrogenated them and they hydrogenated the cottonseed oil and made candles And then when electricity came along, Procter and Gamble was the main maker of the candles said, okay, we better do something. We better find another way to make money. And so they tried to turn their candles into food, which became Crisco. Yeah. Crisco. Good stuff. Yes. What's fun, but this is the crazy part. That is where the American Heart Association got their big influx of money that transformed what was really a small organization of geeky cardiovascularly inclined doctors into, you know, the powerhouse it is today. And that because they they got uh, $1.7 million from Procter and Gamble. And so that relationship is the reason everyone believes saturated fat is bad, right? So that relationship is a myth. So, so we also have Ansel Keys. Yes. And it was, and, the, so he brokered that deal. I mean, I don't, yeah. actually, I don't really know that he was the one that brokered that deal, but I do know that Ansel Keys 
was instrumental in, uh, he was a very influential person. He had like a bullying personality. If you didn't get go along with him, he would just, you know, according to Nina Teicholz, who wrote a great book called the big fat surprise, big fat surprise. Yeah. Yeah. She, she describes like him as a bully who, if, if anybody went up against him, like he would just like flatten them, right. Like publicly or privately or whatever. So total bully before it was really identified as a personality problem. And he like wormed his way into the American Heart Association and became like a major nutrition advisor to the American Heart Association and wormed his way into relationships with all kinds of uh, corporate, you know, fat cats basically. And, and so he, pro- he was in a position where he could have brokered that deal. And I, I believe that he probably did. Yeah, most likely. I mean, and he was a, he wasn't even a nutrition scientist. I mean, he saw, he he studied eels and she tells a story of, of how he really shut down somebody who said, well, it's really all sugar. It's just, it's sugar. And he just completely shut this guy down. And that's, I mean, what a jerk. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, at that Ansel, time, Ansel at that, time that was probably diets. true. At the time, yeah. sugar was much more of an issue because we didn't have the seed oils in our food supply the way that we do now. So that yeah. was that was really, that's really an important point, but I think sugar is not good for us by any means, but I think it's nowhere near as toxic as the seed oils. It, it, it's a really a horrible one, two punch because, and this gets to weight gain, the, the seed oils change your cravings. And so if you are inclined towards a sweet tooth, they will make you a sugar addict and, mm-hmm. and they will make it very difficult for you to get away from not just sweets, but also the carbohydrate rich foods that raise blood sugar. And then, so this is content actually from the fat burn fix, where I talk about the connection between seed oils and how they inflame the brain. There's the Mm -hmm. appetite centers that in the brain and they, they inflame that, uh, very important, uh, structure and they make it so that our cravings are completely wrong. (laughs) It's not, you know, in alignment with what our bodies really want, but in alignment with, uh, what becomes a need for energy because the seed oils deplete your brain of energy. They deplete your, deplete your cells of energy. And when your cells don't get energy from fat, they have to go for something else and sugar's always in the bloodstream. So, so this is such an important concept that it is because it's what causes insulin resistance, you know, so insulin resistance for anybody who doesn't already know is uh, almost anybody who's overweight has insulin resistance. Insulin is a hormone that helps you put the extra carbohydrates in your body fat in storage. And when you're insulin resistant, your insulin level is high. So you're always kind of in that carbohydrates turn into fat, go into body fat mode. You're almost never really be, uh, in the mode of, okay, re- now releasing your body fat into the bloodstream until you do become down the road, you become so severely insulin resistant that even your body fat is uh, insulin resistant. So it's always, so, so you're always getting fat released into the bloodstream. And that is when you start being at extremely high risk for fat building up in your arteries or damaging your arteries and developing arteriosclerosis. So it's a multiple year, multiple decade process going from 
insulin resistance, most of the people who are overweight in their twenties are insulin resistant. And it's a lot easier to reverse at that point in time, but you have to not just cut the carbohydrates, which is what everyone talks about now. Mostly Um, you have to know what the good fats and the bad fats are. So that's why it's, it's important to memorize those three seasons for three S's. I love that. So one thing I think that it's, is important to note is that we have a generation now that is probably slated to live less long than the generation before. And we think that this is because of the food supply, mostly seed oils. <laughs> and and when we look at things like fast food, they're creating a lab that is it, that wants your brain to have more like 30 minutes later, right? And we raise our kids on this stuff because, I mean, it's not our fault in the sense that we believe our government, we believe our, you know, advertising. I mean, we're all susceptible to advertising. It's all meant we just don't have the right education. And so that's what this is for. You know, this is the the right education to talk about what is the best thing to eat. The other thing is, is that when it comes to nutrition, there's just so many beliefs. I mean, the reason why Ansel Keys was able to get this through was because he truly believed in the diet heart hypothesis, which is not true. Yes, absolutely. But you know, he's, there was a lot less confusion in nutrition before Ansel Keys. I mean, even physicians learned about, uh, you know, there were a lot of books written by doctors that were oriented towards the health begins in the home. The health begins, you know, let food be by thy medicine. That goes all the way back to the Greek Hippocrates more than 2000 years ago. So, but like he created like this idea that saturated fat was bad and that therefore created so much confusion because there are no traditional diets that don't use high saturated fat foods, right? Because saturated fat is one of the main fatty acids in most of the animal fats and animal fats are whole food based fats. We don't talk about them that way. We don't, you know, we know whole foods are good, but we never talk about fat as like, they're actually whole foods. I mean, you sort of chop, you can cut, trim the the fat, right? Right. So, but there's no traditional cuisine. And this is why uh, deep nutrition, you know, getting back to deep nutrition, jumping around a little bit, sorry, there, that book takes a, an analysis of all the traditional cuisines that I could analyze all around the world, which were many, many hundreds of them. And not a one is vegan or vegetarian, like spontaneously, like there's religious organizations, but that's very different than an actual cuisine. Like, okay, we all grew up on this, right? We all, we all have three generations of healthy children. There isn't an example like that with vegan or vegetarian. So you take away saturated fat, you take away animal fat, you take away all traditional cuisines. You do that. And now you can't just cook what your mother cooked, or now it's in our gener- my generation, it was what your grandmother cooked or your great-grandmother cooked, yeah. right? Before Ansel Keys, you have to go back to the 1920s, 1930s. And, and so, but that's what people used to do. They just used to say, well, what did, what did I grow up eating? They said, you know, like, what did I grow up eating? What do I like to eat? And it was so easy. You just kept doing what you grew up on, which is stuff you liked because you grew up on it. You know how to do it. I mean, it just made everything so easy but you separate people from that tradition and you allow, you create confusion. And so that is kind of like my problem with the American Heart Association and Ansel Keys. And and it's everybody's problem because of that, 
you now have very smart people saying, well, we really don't know what a healthy human diet is. And that is not the case. And that's the whole purpose of deep nutrition is to say that for thousands of years, people were following their cultural like norms, really. And it was as simple as that, that traditional cuisine was able to guarantee healthy children generation after generation. And that, and that's a science, right? So that was a science, right? It's not considered nutrition science to look at an old cookbook, which we, which we have hundreds of hundreds of examples, probably thousands. I mean, I mean, look Um, at Julia Child. I mean, she, you know, she just, she cooked with so much butter and she lived a long time and, and actually still have her book uh, called the way to cook. And I use it. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 I remember a line somewhere in there. One from one of her PBS specials. She Mm -hmm. was like, if you don't like vegetables, just add more butter. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Which is so true because you yeah. take away this. It's another important thing that I I discovered this by talking to my patients. I said, you know, I ask people who don't who are so dependent on carbohydrates because they don't like vegetables, right? Because you have to have something with your dinner. So what else are you going to fill up on? So well, if you don't like any vegetables, so you you go to bread and pasta and the cheap easy stuff. But why don't they like vegetables? I, when I ask that, the answer is, uh, is when I get down to it, they always tell me a story of, well, my mom used to make me eat broccoli with like no, nothing on it, just flavorless, no salt, you know, over probably over steamed and soggy Gross. too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that, that's traumatic. And, and so you take away saturated fat and butter you take away even like the ability to like vegetables. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just a huge problem and it's coming from the American Heart Association. So they are the problem. They are the enemy of our health. And yet doctors don't know that. And it's confusing. This is because it's confusing for people who don't know any of this because they don't know why their doctors insist that saturated fat and cholesterol bad. They don't know why they're told not to eat eggs and butter. So that's why I like to give them the whole backstory. Sure. And I think, I think that's really important. I went to a few years ago, I went to Andrew Weil's nutrition conference in Seattle and I listened to the data. Somebody was presenting data about what diets are most effective. And far and away, it was the paleo diet back then. I think that was maybe in, that was before I read your book. So maybe 2014. And I came home and I threw away every little piece of grain we had in our house. And that was like the very very beginning of my kind of journey back to health. Because from going through residency and smoking and gaining a lot of weight, not exercising, because residency is traumatic. (laughs) (laughs) surgical residency, especially, you you don't sleep and then not exercising and all those things. I was just a metabolic mess. And so it took me from probably 2014 to 2020 to drop a good 30, 40 pounds. And I've recently in really focusing on protein and and I'm actually counting macros right now, been able to drop another 10 and I feel good and I'm starting to burn fat again and and I don't have to eat keto. And so it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not eating a lot of carbs because I'm, I'm trying to cut weight, but I know I'll be able to reintroduce them again. That to me, I think is the most freeing thing of all. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the control really is what you want. And 
when you can burn your body fat, when you rehabilitate your body fat, because with CETO as a lifetime of CETO consumption, your body fat is your enemy, not your friend. Right. So you have to rehabilitate it. And, and that's what the fat burn fix teaches folks how to do. But once you do that, then you give your brain energy between meals. And that energy is really the key to control because without energy, you are desperate for energy, your brain cells will die within yeah. seconds of not getting enough energy. And, you know, there's a lot of research supporting the idea that migraine headaches, especially, you know, your typical migraine headache with aura is an experience of energy deficit. Mm. And that the aura that is that changes visual vision, or, you know, different people have different kinds of auras in different parts of their brain. But that aura is a result of severely energy deprived cells, just basically not functioning. And that's why you can't, that's why there's like this change in your lack of vision. There's no, you don't see anything with a visual aura as it goes across the visual cortex. And then for a period of hours to days, that part of the brain is non-functional. And that's why people are so tired and nauseated and have to lay down. And that is, uh, I believe, going to reverse with avoiding seed oils and getting healthy fats in your diet. And, and actually, it's not just a belief. There was a really cool study that was done out of the NIH in, I think, 2014. And he took uh, somewhere around 100 people who had extremely severe migraine, took them off their seed oils. And it was in just 12 weeks, which is, you know, not very much time when we're considering you're rebuilding your brain in just 12 weeks, people experienced such radical improvement that like most of the people who entered the study were, they were on tons of meds. They were on an average of five meds by 12 weeks later, 80% of them were medication free. Wow. I mean, it's not like a minor, it's like the that's, most powerful. That's really I, I mean, I, I think that that's really important. So if you're a woman who's suffering from migraines or even a man, maybe the key is to removing all of the seed oils and paying attention because they're they're in everything. They're in everything because they're odorless, tasteless, and cheap. We have a menopause and headaches. I've, I've, I have a friend of mine who's a functional medicine doctor who's come on. We went to medical school together and we've talked about that, but we didn't really talk about the nutrition behind it. And what I've found in women who come through the mental system and are in the Minimum Mate Monthly, what they do is as as they make these changes in their lives and start to incorporate it in a way that is, you know, feels effortless, what happens is like they're like, my doctor just took me off of this med and that med. And like my counselor now says that I'm I'm I've come through like year what you what should have taken years of therapy. And and it's just a matter of getting the right education about nutrition. It's, I yeah. mean, it's crazy. That feels <laughs> like such a win to me. Like yeah. whenever somebody comes back and says, oh yeah, I don't need this medication. I feel yeah. like I just like hit a home run or something like that. I wish like doctors were graded not on, you know, by how many medications we get people on, <laughs> but the other way. Just let's remember, I mean, again, who benefits from, I mean, we're taught to, and, and I, I, I teach this all the time. Doctors are taught to treat disease. We are not in the business of healthcare. We're in the business of sick care. And it takes us having our own crises to actually do the research to try and get into the healthcare. And then what happens is a lot of us like me, we end up leaving medicine altogether because there's other ways to help. Well, and not only that, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, 
it's hard to practice medicine once you understand the role of nutrition. Mm-hmm. I tried, you know, I kept moving. I for for over 10 years, I went from job to job because I naively believed it when the hospital administrators would say, Oh, yeah, we're a wellness, lip service, lip service, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But they still wanted me to turn through patients every 15 minutes, which doesn't give you time to do anything. No. So, you know, I kept trying to find innovative ways to work within the system and they're they just don't want to do that. <laughs> doesn't there isn't well, a way. And the other thing is is they don't want to hear that we can cure almost anything with our diets. Almost. Right. I mean, how would that help? How would that help them? Right. Right. They don't don't benefit. They don't. Well, not only that, I mean, you think about it, right? Pharmaceutical companies aren't going to make any money by us saying, hey, eat a a vegetable. (laughs) And that's who drives research, right? So like, we're, I'm, I'm in a position, I'm trying to write another book and I'm going nuts because I'm trying to describe the situation that we're in, which is we have the American Heart Association insisting that, you know, on their view of nutrition science. And so that means that anybody doing research in nutrition, they have to go along with that. You can't do outside of that uh, kind of nutrition research very easily because it's considered unethical to give people a certain amount of saturated fat. And, and most people don't even know that like that there's such a thing as a keto diet or low carb diet. I mean, it's becoming more popular now, but the researchers don't know that that's something that they could be looking at. They don't even know Mm -hmm. it exists. And then there's all these people who understand the chemistry of the body and the the basic chemistry of cells who are understanding the causes of disease, but their job isn't to um, prevent the disease. Their job is to find a drug. So 99% or more of all the science happening is a waste of money because of that, because we're not looking for the real cause. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, you know, I have friends who are cardiologists and it's funny because one one of my friends who's a cardiologist, a triathlete, and I don't know, I, I've seen him eat. He eats potato chips. I mean, the guy exercises so much. He still has abs. And I mean, he eats potato chips and sandwiches and stuff. And like, if I eat that, you know, I just <laughs> can't eat like that. Right. <laughs> and I exercise a lot. I mean, I exercise probably 10 hours a week. You know, it's not like I don't exercise, but it's, it's, it's really interesting, but difference in the, so we have a group of cardiologists, like 11 guys in the, in this cardiology group. And the interesting thing about how they recommend diet, cause we have some guys in there who say, eat as much fat as you want, as long as it's good fat. And we have the other guys who say, you you have to not have fat. And again, it comes down to belief, but I think the science is showing us different. And like you said, how do you get funding when the American Heart Association has been sold a bill of goods? They've, they've been sold a lie. Right. You can, you, yeah. you can, you know, lose your job if you can't get funding. And if you are looking for funding from industry or the American Heart Association, which, you know, gives a lot of funding for research. I mean, basically they are a fictional science organization. That's what they do. They create fictional science and they force feed it to doctors. But, you know, getting back to your friend, who's a biker, maybe you want to share this little, I just want to share a quick story about my uncle. So mm-hmm. my, I had a, an uncle who was, didn't know anything about nutrition, but was trying to follow his doctor's advice to the standard American diet, lots of seed oils, very little animal fat. And he loved biking and he was thin and healthy looking and perhaps very much like your doctor friend one day out on a bike ride, dropped dead of a heart attack because you can't tell by somebody's weight, what's happening in their arteries. And you can't tell 
by having low LDL cholesterol, what's happening in your arteries. That doesn't tell you what you really need is to know some other things that are happening, like oxidized LDL and what is your level of linoleic acid? What is your antioxidant reserve? And those are not common tests. But when, you know, when I work with people, those are the things that I look at. But Mm -hmm. so most people are doing, you know, getting the wrong diet and then they're getting the wrong dietary advice. And then they are, you know, getting false reassurance by looking in the mirror or looking at their LDL level and thinking that that's good because, well, even if I have to take a statin, it's down. And that means my arteries are clean. That's no, there's almost no correlation between LDL levels and arterial health. It's all about whether or not you have the seed oils in your body fat, then they end up in your arteries. Right. And they end up as the building blocks of your hormones. So it's not like, I mean, the fat, fats, you know, fats are the building blocks of your hormones. And menopause, I think, is really disrupted for a lot of us in the Western world, because we have been eating these seed oils. I mean, even my friend, Julia Child, who I love, I made cookies with this child who was in my home the other day. It called for a cup of vegetable oil, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so what I used was peanut oil. I used a peanut oil that tasted like peanuts. And so then the cookies had kind of a peanut flavor and, you know, that was fine. But I I was like, what? You know, I had a chef for a while and I had, we used to have a, she, she actually, for a long time, she worked for me for six years and, and we've written a book together and she's, she's awesome. Her name is uh, Cassandra Katoya. And we, I used to have my staff over when I had the surgical practice and we would do cooking nights. And so they wanted to learn how to make a pie and she's making the pie crust and she pulls out a stick of Crisco. And I, I almost went apoplectic. I said, what, what are you doing? We can't feed that to people. And she made it and they ate it. And I was like, I, I'm not, I'm not eating that. And so it's, it's, it's really hard. So I wanted to just get, get you to talk a little bit about vegetable oil and epigenetics and you talk about this in deep nutrition and you talk, talk about how your ligaments started to fall apart. And if you could just give us that bit of insight, I, I would really love to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so ligaments are connective tissue, right? The ligaments and tendons, they can, they hold your bones to, together. They hold the muscle to the bone. That's why they're called connective tissue. They literally connect us together. And without any connective tissue, all we would just fall down onto the floors onto a pile of individual cells. Our skin is made up of connective tissue too. And so as a kid, you know, in, in high school, I was trying to be an athlete and I was actually pretty all right at it because um, I have giant lungs. The camera's not down here, but I have humongous <laughs> rib cage. So as so it's a really great advantage for a distance runner. So, but I kept getting uh, like shin splints and tendon problems. And I kept getting sidelined and injured and it got worse when I was in college, which was really, I felt horrible because I was on a scholarship, but I didn't know why, because my mom and my dad, none of these problems, none. I mean, my dad, mm was like able to, he's like just a guy who could just up and go for a hundred mile bike ride. If you felt like it, you know, never had a chronic pain in his life. And my grandparents, my my grandparents, like they were all super healthy and why me? Like what was wrong with me? So in fact, I was so like bothered by that is the whole reason I wanted to go to Cornell to become a biochemist. Cause I was like, well, I'm going to find I have some kind of genetic issue. And I want to discover like, what is the cause of these connective tissue problems? And, you know, I, of course that's not what genetics was about at that time. It became ultimately genetically modified organisms, right? Yeah. Science is always going off in these directions that are sad, make me sad. But <laughs> so, so anyway, 
what does seed oils have to do with it? Well, the epigenetics is this science that explains that. So epigenetics is about genetics, but beyond just the DNA code. It's about how does that DNA code become you? How do those genes get expressed? What controls that genetic expression? And more than anything else, I mean, hormones are one thing, absolutely very important, but more than anything else, it's food because even food regulates your hormones too. Mm-hmm. And some levels. So, but like minerals and amino acids and components of your food directly interact with your DNA. And so when I was growing up, my mom was following what she thought was a healthy diet because it was like this diet for a small planet, basically just don't, don't feed your kids meat because that's like not, you know, oh, I remember well, just like book. today, right. It's yeah. not ethical, right. You're not supposed to meat is an unethical thing to be eating supposedly, right? Because it's supposedly bad for the planet and supposedly all these other things. Of course, meats, I mean, the cows that we have now really do suffer and it is kind of horrible the way we treat them. And that's a whole other topic, but let's say you do it right. You should be able to feel feed your kids lots of meat and not feel, not be made to feel guilty. But anyway, so, so I grew up like with very little protein and lots of seed oils because my, my dad was a doctor and we didn't have butter in the house and (laughs) we didn't have a lot of tasty vegetables, but we had, we had like frozen peas with margarine. So I I just grew up without the same kind of basic building blocks to build me that my parents grew up with. And that epigenetics is kind of the science. Like that's kind of an an easy, you know, you almost might think, well, that's obvious. Not enough food stunts your growth. Yeah, that's true. And epigenetics is the science of exactly how that happens. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So you were having a lot of injuries and what led you to do that research then? You know? Yeah. So one time I went out and I had a strange kind of injury that I had never had before which led to me feeling sick. So like I had pain in my knee, but I also had swelling and it was like not real, not real bad pain. It didn't feel like you step on it and it hurts. It was like you're, you're walking around normal for a little while. And all of a sudden you just get this throbbing, deep, horrible ache. Oh, and I also was getting fevers and Mm. sweats and just fatigue. And, um, it, it, you know, nobody knew what was wrong with me. I had to figure it out my entirely myself. I was on a tiny Island of Kauai. We had no, we had like one orthopedic doctor. So I traveled to different islands and I even went to see a kahuna. Nobody had a clue. No one could help me. So like, I was just like sobbing sad and I couldn't exercise because I was really an exercise fanatic. So I used to spend, you know, a lot of hours a week doing things other than reading, (laughs) you know? And so now I had all this time and nothing to do. And my husband said, you know, maybe sugar isn't really so good for you because I had a horrible sweet tooth and I had like a quarter cup of caramel sauce that I made from scratch because we didn't have Starbucks on the Island (laughs) every single day, my coffee. And, And so my husband was like saying, maybe your diet has something to do with it for years. And I didn't listen to him. And so <laughs> but that was like the hardest thing I had to do was like admit that maybe I was wrong and <laughs> my husband was actually right. <laughs> and so he gave me a book that uh, led me to this concept of essential fatty acids, which uh, are the omega-3 and the omega-6. And, and that was a thing that like, I kind of remembered that vaguely from biochemistry, because those are the form, those are the foundations of a lot of important signaling molecules and like pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory, a lot of female hormones, a lot of pain is caused by these signaling molecules every single month and in labor. And so these are important signaling molecules, but I didn't know that we had to eat 
these fatty acids, omega-3 and omega-6 for that whole cascade to work. And I didn't know that we had to eat them in somewhat of a correct balance too. So I didn't know that. And I was just like blown away by the fact that there was this pretty important thing about fats that I didn't know. And what it was really telling me that was radical was that food isn't just calories and it isn't just building blocks either. It's actually chemical information and it Mm -hmm. informs your genes. And that's where the science of epigenetics really kind of helps fill out that theory. It's true. It's not theory. It is food is chemical information. And so it's way more than calories. And so the whole idea that, you know, that I grew up with in the seventies and eighties, that fat makes you fat is because it's rich in calories and we should eat less and we should have more. Therefore we should have more carbohydrate, which is just sugar. And there's no information in that, but in fat, healthy fat, there's vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin D, vitamin K too. And so, and these fatty acids themselves. So that was like um, an eye opener. And I just ended up just going down the rabbit hole of, okay, well then what is a healthy diet? And that's where my husband and I started writing the book, deep nutrition, which explains what all healthy human cultures have always done in order to be healthy themselves and have healthy children. So that's how I got into it. And the four pillars of the human diet that you discovered? Yeah. So those, uh, the four things that all cultures did in common. So I, that's what I call the four pillars of the human diet. So we eat fresh food without cooking it, stuff that was seasonal. Sometimes it was animal products that, uh, that we just didn't bother cooking. Like all dairy was never pasteurized before we invented pasteurization. Then if you had too much of something and you wanted to preserve it, you would ferment it. So that's where cheese comes from. That's where yogurt comes from in warm climates. The, the milk wouldn't really stay fresh very long. So they would ferment it into yogurt. And if you also, if you wanted to use nuts and seeds, you can soak and sprout them. So the second pillar, the first is fresh. The second is fermented and sprouted because they, it's kind of like working with nature. You work with the natural organisms, or you work with the enzymes that are in the seed to enhance the nutrition of your food. And then the third is meat on the bone. So people would use the whole animal. They would, they didn't trim the fat off. And if there was skin on it, they would like use that skin to keep in the moisture. So like in examples in Hawaii, they, where I wrote deep nutrition, right? Uh, We were in Hawaii at the time when we wrote it. And uh, there's this luau pork. Have you ever seen, if you've ever seen, I've I've only seen pictures. I've never, I've never been to it, but. So what it is, is pork that's actually been buried in a traditional oven, which is underground. It's called an emu. So they just take the whole thing and they tie its little feet to some kind of a big humongous stick. And they put it in this massive pit with really, really hot rocks and cover it with banana leaves and let it sit there for hours and hours or like a day or something until, but they don't take the skin off. They do very little They do a very simple recipe. Pig in whole heat. <laughs> well, they get it first though, right? <laughs> What's that? They get it. They do get it first, right? Yes, they do. They do. Yeah. And they feed it. They feed okay. it. So like they cut it and then they feed, they kind of fatten it up mm-hmm. to make it like extra fatty. Right. And yeah. so they know what they're doing. There's all this important information is in this tradition is like, yeah, we used animal fat. We used it to actually keep the, the cook the meat properly. So it became, if you've ever been to Ulua, you would know that it is falling off the bone tender. It's just like falls apart. It's so good. And they don't use any spices. They didn't have any. It's just the natural flavors all coming out into it. So that's, that's a long story about um, meat on the bone. And, and then the fourth pillar is organ meats because 
they are little nature's little magical uh, superfoods because every different organ of an animal's body has a different nutritional profile that's radically different than muscle meat. And so we've got lots of vitamins and minerals and goodies of all sorts that are in liver that are not in, you know, a steak or Mm -hmm. the other parts that people used to eat. And this is where you can have fun time looking through old cookbooks because you'll see recipes for esophagus and, you know, um, just parts that you wouldn't think like, how do you make that taste good? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, I have a a big team of, of people who work with me in the Philippines. And so they'll send me pictures of the food that they're eating. And just recently it was chicken, fried chicken, intestines and fried pork intestines. And to me that I don't know that I could eat it because I don't have that taste for, I mean, I I don't mind lamb. Lamb is not too bad. And I'll eat bison. I love bison because it, it, I think it tastes better than hamburger, but every once in a while, I mean, when I was a kid, I ate a lot of liver, but I, I don't, I don't eat liver now very often. It's oh, really you did. Rare. You got liver growing up. That's great. I mean, yeah, that yeah. really gives you, that really helps those genes express and lots of good things happen. Yeah. We had a milkman too. So we had, we oh. had milk delivered and I mean, it, my father grew up on a, a dairy farm, a cattle ranch. So it was, it was dairy and it was, it was also cattle that they were growing. And so we, when I was growing up, it was bacon and eggs and, you know, we'd have a sandwich for lunch usually. And, but then cereal came along and I never gained weight until actually after I had a baby. And I can see now understanding how the fats affect the hormones. I can understand why I had such a hard time losing that weight, you know, and then what I would do is I would exercise and it would come off and the menopause hit. (laughs) And and I would exercise and I kept my calories, you know, I'd eat 1200 calories and the weight wouldn't come off and I would still exercise and I was miserable, just completely miserable. And so then I discovered your book and I started eating better and I feel better, you know, and, and that's, that's really important. And I think, you know, when you talk about inflammation and inflammation in the brain and how that affects, you know, headaches and it's just, there's so much here. And we're almost out of time. So (laughs) I know it's it's like, I think we could probably go on for a couple of hours. What I would like to know is that for someone who's listening here and what would be the number other than seed oils. And I mean, we didn't even get to talk about sugar and how sugar makes everything sticky. So I'd love to have you come back and talk about, talk to me about sugar, but what is the, other than seed oils, what is the number one thing you think somebody can do to really take control of, of their life when it comes to nutrition? Um, I think, I guess, nutrition wise, another thing I find a lot of folks inadequate, you know, getting not enough of is, is protein because all of our, you know, most of the visible structures of the body are basically mostly protein. And, and that includes our connective tissues. They are uh, made out of protein. And, you know, because a lot of folks try to stay away from steak and animal products for what they believe to be health reasons or ethical reasons, because most animals are treated horribly, then they just don't get enough. It's not easy to get enough from plants, like a plant-based diet, it's very tough to get enough protein because the the protein is different in plants. And, you know, even high protein plant foods like soy compared to, you know, a steak or a chicken leg or something like that, the amount of extra calories that you get with the protein is like double or triple or 10 times as much if you have to lean cut. So it's, it's tough, you know, to get enough. And 
besides the building block aspect of proteins, a lot of our hormones are protein, right? Like, so, I mean, with menopause, we think mostly about the steroid hormones, which are basically coming from cholesterol, which is in, in fatty foods, but the horm most, many, many of the hormones are protein. And the other thing that's really not talked about enough at all is that our antioxidant system is built on enzymes. It's not built on like antioxidants and blueberries and strawberries and plants like that. It's built on enzymes and enzymes are all made out of protein. That's amazing. I, was there anything else you were hoping to share with the audience? Probably about a hundred things. But <laughs> well, I definitely want to have you come back because, you know, we, we've had a few few people who have just have so much to say and we just have a series with them. And, and I would love to have you come back and just, we just keep talking. Where can people find you? Uh, my website is drkate.com, D-R-C-A-T-E.com. All right. Um, and and are I'm you also, still in, oh, go ahead. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, but I can never remember my handle. So they're on my website. I think, I think well, I follow you on Twitter. I can check that out real quick. I think <laughs> you're, um, I've been following you on Twitter for a long time. You can search for Dr. Kate on Twitter just by using Kate Shanahan and, and, and she'll come up. I think it's really interesting and noble that you're taking on such a big behemoth and it's like fighting City Hall in, in fighting the American uh, Heart Association. And I, I commend you for that and uh, back you up as much as I can. Are you are you still seeing patients? Well, yes, I work for a company that is actually wanting me just to be the doctor, like their doctor. So there's no insurance involved. Uh, I can take notes how I see fit. Like I don't yeah. have to do, you know, document 10 system review systems, negative and all these silly things. Yeah, I have to do. And I can see people as often as they need to be seen because they don't pay anything. So that, you know, I, the company paid me and then the, all the employees get to see me for free as often as they need. And That's so I'm great. mostly focusing on um, metabolic health and, you know, that translates to weight loss. But a lot of people are learning that, oh, no, if I have autoimmune disease or if I have intestinal problems or whatever, there's doc maybe Dr. Kate can help. So they yeah. are, you know, learning to get in touch with me. It's, it's a lot of culture change. Um, sure. So yeah. So yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's the only way that medicine can be practiced like in a fun way, I think, for doctors who, you know, want to be able to talk about major lifestyle change and nutrition. Yeah. You yeah, can't do it in the regular system. Yeah, no, it, the, the regular system is broken. It's really, really broken. And <laughs> COVID has proven that. And one of the things I wanted to share before was that, you know, the chef that I work with, she has noticed, and this is anecdotal evidence, of course, but that the people that she cooks for haven't gotten COVID. Oh, <laughs> Because oh, yeah. Nutrition. Okay. So another thing I, yeah. I do is I, I do all the COVID management. So I've had, I don't know, six, five, 600 people contact me about, is this COVID? Is that COVID? We've had over a hundred cases. And unfortunately we had two people die. Um, and, and then a couple of cases that were really severe, but you know, there were no surprises among the people, but, but discriminating between the people who COVID would barely touch and, the people who COVID really just devastated. It was it was metabolic, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the obese are much more susceptible. And lastly, the Lakers. You were the nutritional consultant for the Lakers. Yeah, and uh, for for six seasons. And and now that really, what I did though was I, I worked with their chef, who was a fantastic, fantastic, talented chef. And she had grown up in a traditional household, one of nine girls. She grew up in the kitchen next to her mom and her dad, who both cooked. And like, all I really did was give her permission to do the kinds of things that she really wanted to do, which was use traditional fats, you know, not waste, right? So you save mm -hmm. bones, you use broth. 
And, and they're still doing that. Like, so that's what all the Lakers are now getting whenever the Lakers organization is feeding them, which is in training and, you know, to the extent that they want other, other places, cause they, they bring the chef around with them. Oh, that's great. I, I think that's amazing. And I think the, the concept of permission is so important because women in particular wait for permission. And so I want to kind of end this with, you don't need permission to eat good food. Very good. You don't need permission from a doc, your doctor. You don't need permission sure. from anyone. I, I mean, it's okay to, I mean, we're, we're, you know, what we're knowing is that the things that, that taste good for the most part, we're not talking about manufactured foods, but things that come from nature that taste good are also good for you. And that, you know, that steak and bacon and, and all the things that, that, you know, society's tried to tell us and government's tried to tell us was no good. It, that's bullshit. It's not, it's, it's real and it's okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. It. Kate, thanks for being a part of the menopause movement today. I really appreciate you taking the time and I can't wait to have you back. Thanks Dr. Michelle. <laughs> it's been fun. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life, and to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement.